That's all right. Well, it's wonderful to be with you today. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. Uh, you will see that we are jumping into a new series, and this series is called Enough. And I, I think that we're going to go after something that I believe is, is really, is, if we can get our arms, our, our minds around this concept, I think it will be transformative in the way that we interact, the way that we sort of steward our lives and our resources here on planet Earth. So today you'll notice that we're going to be talking about the theology of enough. And, and I, um, I want to just begin right out of the gate by telling you that uh, I, mostly I just want to brag on you over like I just I want you to be really really uh, secure in in just my gratitude for the provision of God for his church called Overlake through the people that he has gathered here the Overlake family so last year I mentioned this briefly last week but last year you need to know that it was one of the most generous one of, one of the most incredible just a banner year for the the Overlake Church family. We did our budget affirmation last week, and you'll have noticed if you came any time in January, our, our budget was printed in there, and you'll have seen that we were uh, finishing the year in the black, and that was after a string of many, many years that we've been able to finish in the black. So I'm just so thankful as a pastor, somebody who also financially contributes here at Overlake, that, that I get to join in with you and celebrating that reality. So can we just thank God for, for his provision over us? It's just so good. And then in addition to that, we were going after this thing last fall called the Katali Project, where we're helping street kids get off the streets, reorientated, and then back, placed back into loving homes in Katali, Kenya. And there was specifically, there was a need that we put out. There was a, a big need for all the startup costs over Katali. And so we let you know what that need was, $250,000. And then there was a monthly commitment that we were asking Overlake uh, to pick up and to sustain the project monthly and that was $14,000. Well, how you guys responded is for all the startup costs, uh, you came in not only at 250, but you overdid it. $285,000 was given for us to start. So that's beautiful. And then the 14,000, you guys came in at 14,500. You just decided to bump that one too. So that's been the monthly commitment. Yeah, you can thank the Lord for all that. It's just so great. So that's off and running. I'm excited to be a part of that with you. I wanted to begin with sort of the good news by bragging on you guys a little bit. If there's an encouragement in this, just stay the course. Let's stay faithful. Let's keep going after what God has for us. But here's the thing. A lot of times what churches do is they build a stewardship series in when the church isn't doing very well. And, and when, when the pastor really just wants his people to begin to give or start to give or come on, let me have some sign that you're with me and all this. Uh, that's not where we are. We're, we're in a great place and I'm so thankful to the Lord for where we are. I just want you to know what these next two weeks are is really going to be going after a very healthy approach to what does it look like for us to get in and to address our financial reality with the lens that God wants us to have as Jesus followers. That's what we're going to go after. And, and just to start this off, we're going to go back ages and ages and ages. I found this ancient Chinese proverb which says, it is better to have money than to not. 
And some of us, that's just kind of how we live our lives. Like, yeah, of course, that's true. I also found this ancient wisdom, you know, through the ages. It says, desire is strong, but mother is stronger. I thought that was also true as well. It doesn't really have anything to do with the message, but... Now, I will say that there are all kinds of thoughts about how to approach our finances in this room, for those that are watching online, that just about everybody has some kind of an approach. This is what I think about when I think about my finances or I think about resources. It could be different. I I would imagine that if we all line up, there'd be hundreds of opinions about it, but here would be one common reality that we would all view money and our resources through the lens of scarcity. That just about every single one of us, when we come at dealing with the provision that God has, has given to us, we always start with the foundation of scarcity. It's just how our world operates, and we've just bought into it so thoroughly that we don't even question its premise. Let me give you one reality. This is an historical fact. Napoleon invited the king of Siam to come and to have a state visit. Uh, this was obviously a couple of centuries ago. And, and as he invited the king of Siam in, it was this royal state dinner kind of a thing. All the dignitaries were given gold utensils and, and the finest china. So can you imagine the fork, the knife, the sp- all the utensils were made of solid gold. But that wasn't good enough for Napoleon to offer the king of Siam. And so he had... Utensils made out of the rarest metal on the planet at the time. And he offered them exquisitely just to the king of Siam. And so that king was dining with a fork and a knife made of aluminum that night. <laughs> aluminum, the, the most precious metal on planet Earth. Now, of course... Aluminum is, what do we use it for? We wrap our leftovers in it, put them in a shape of a goose, you know, and then we throw them away. Like, like that's, that's how sort of worthless we view aluminum today. But in Napoleon's day, it was the most precious metal on the planet. Why? Because it was scarce. They didn't know how to mine it. They didn't know how to use it. They didn't know how to shape it or anything. So they, they considered it precious because it was scarce. Here's the question you have to ask. What is the inherent value of aluminum? If there was an inherent value in aluminum, it wouldn't have swung from the most expensive metal on the planet to the metal that we wrap food in and discard without thinking about it. Are you tracking with me? And there's a huge lesson in this because so much of what we think about when we think about resources, provision, what is we're going after, all we're doing is buying into this age-old myth of it's scarce, therefore it's valuable. But friends, what, what Jesus followers need to go after is what's valuable in its own right what has intrinsic worth, what what has inherent value. These are the things that we need to be going after. And these are the things, by the way, that God loves to provide for us. So this is the theology of enough. 
And the theology of enough states, and, and, and these are radical and, and revolutionary concepts that are also entirely biblical and absolutely plain for those of us who open the pages of scripture. But it is based on the audacious belief that God is a good provider. It's based on this radical concept that God has provided everything that everyone needs. It's based on the premise that God is a good father who not only has provided for us, but will continue to provide as the future unfolds. These thoughts are powerful biblical truths, but they are completely revolutionary to our culture today. And and I want you to think, this is a verse, we're going to start with a verse that you know, many of you know this by heart, you might know the whole passage by heart. It's one of the most famous verses in the entire canon of scripture. And it says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, say it with me, want. That's right. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I'd love to have you circle the phrase, I shall not want, and then kind of draw an arrow back to the shepherd. Because it's in the correlation between these two realities. The the shepherd And it's in the shepherd and him being our Lord and our shepherd that our wants, our needs, our desires are satisfied in an overwhelming fashion. So much because, catch this, we allow ourselves to be shepherded by him. And that's peace. And that's enough. And to step into this theology of enough, there really are three bold choices that we need to make. And so I'm just going to go through these. You might want to write these down. Any notes that you feel like God's stirring in your heart, go ahead and write these down. But the number one is we need to choose contentment over dissatisfaction. Choose contentment over dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction, by the way, just inflames desire. And desire is neither good or bad. It just is. But unfortunately, we do have a desire problem. And the desire problem we have is which direction we tend to orient our desire. And the first reality in this is that desire is oriented toward what we do not have. It's just this incredible problem that instead of focusing on the provision that God has already poured out in our life, we only focus our desire toward the stuff that we don't have yet, that hasn't been provided yet. Does this make sense? Like we we never just really enjoy the, the provision that God has already poured out to us because it's almost like, well, if he's given it to us, it must not be that worth it. Let, let's focus on what we don't have because that must really be something special. And I know it sounds silly, but we have a video for you. It's a video of a little girl and, and, and it's, she's really clearly articulating some of her desires. So go ahead and, and watch this video. You what? I just can't stop thinking about waffles. Well, you had waffles for dinner and you had waffles for breakfast. So we're going to eat something else. Oh, I, I can't stop. Why can't I just stop dreaming about waffles? I don't know. <laughs> she just can't stop dreaming about waffles. And I don't know if you could hear what her mom was said, but she said, now, honey, you had waffles for dinner last night and you had waffles for breakfast this morning. So we're going to eat something else now. 
but she just can't stop thinking about waffles, right? And it's just, forget about what she's already been given. Forget about what she's already enjoyed. She just wants to focus on what hasn't been given yet. And this is so true for so many of us so often. And you would even think like, well, is this just natural or what's going on? Let me tell you, the American culture has intentionally architected itself to be focused on desires inflamed in a way that you have not yet received and to spend very little time focusing on what has already been granted into your care. This was about 100 years ago. It was at the end of World War I, and factories and businesses were very concerned. They were concerned that, that uh, you know, during the wartime, all these factories, there was kind of boom production during the season, and they were American uh, businessmen uh, were concerned that Americans would stop purchasing and, and, and because they would have all their needs met. And, and so they brought in a guy. This guy came out of uh, Lehman Brothers, actually, and he pitched this concept, and it, and it just it spread like wildfire. It was this thought creation, and the guy's name was Paul Mazur, and he says this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And they did. We, we've been duped. We, we, that, that's exactly what's happened. The, the, the entire culture, the, you know, all of the marketing, all the advertising, it's all to stir desire for things we do not yet have instead of being focused with gratitude on the things that have already been provided. And then you find this wisdom. It comes from that, that wonderful sage theologian, Cheryl Crow, she says, it's not having what you want, it's wanting what you've got. And over like, we've talked about this before through series we've done, like less stuff and more life, where we, we recognize that, that if we begin to focus on the things that God has provided, if we begin to enjoy the provision that God has already poured out over our lives, if we take care of that and we steward it well and we use it well and we share it well, then, then, then we'll experience a greater sense of satisfaction. But right now we've got a desire problem. The desire problem is we focus our desires on things we do not have. The next part of our desire problem is our desires oriented towards things that will not satisfy. These things have no lasting value in and of themselves, and so they don't satisfy. For example, you might want to write this down. New stuff and satisfaction are rarely correlated. New stuff and satisfaction do not go together. Retail therapy never works. And, and many of you could give a testimony to that because what happens is we actually go after that. We go after retail therapy. We go after buying the new thing. And we think it's going to provide some satisfaction. And maybe it does for a short time. It might do while the new car smell still lasts. But basically it's over by the time the second vanilla milkshake gets spilled in the back seat. Right? We know this. And, and, and what is it? We, we know that we could, you know, you can purchase a car for $1,500. You could purchase a car for $15,000. You could purchase a car for $55,000. 
And you can purchase a car for $3.5 million. I just read it this week. There's a car for sale, $3.5 million. Now, here's the thing. Safeway is still the same distance away from your house. It's just going to get you there and back like that. That's it. And yet, what is it? When we think about purchasing something, we always think about purchasing up. We think about purchasing uh, newer, shinier, bigger, bolder, faster, you know, whatever it is. We hardly ever think about downgrading. We always think about upgrading. We hardly ever think about downsizing. We always think about upsizing. And, and so it's interesting to me, in fact, the millennials are kind of stirring this idea that thrifty is actually cool. There's this sort of new thing that if do-it-yourself is actually a value in and of itself. And there's this idea of being frugal and being wise with money and, and, and being really careful about how you spend. That, that, that actually is kind of a, it, it's like in right now. It's very cool. But you have to recognize that, that the idea of upgrading, if I, if I could just buy that product or if I could just get that service, then my life would be better. So rarely is that true. I'll just give you one personal example from my own life, and please just allow me to be vulnerable for just a moment or two here. Several years ago, uh, actually it was about three years ago, um, my wife was home, and, and there was a guy that came to the door, and he, he was a landscaper. He did lawn care and stuff like that, and he did our next-door neighbor and across the street and a couple other uh, houses around, and so he talked to, to Jody, and he said, you know, and he's a really great guy, super kind, very nice, but he said, hey, I'm already here, you know, and, and so I can offer you this kind of deal. If you'd like me to do your yard, I can, it's super cheap, and, and so Jody enjoyed the conversation. She said, yeah, that'd be great. So this guy has come, and he's actually been a cool kind of a friend in our life, and we love supporting him. We love supporting his family, his business. It's, all that's great. So no, no complaints there. There's only one massive problem with this arrangement. It's that I love to mow the yard. I love it. I, I love to do the yard work. I, I have always loved it, and I've told stories about loving it. And I, like, I, there's nothing like on that, you know, we had a super moon a, a, a few weeks ago, but now we're having an even more rare sighting. It's the sunshine in the sky. And there's nothing like, like a full sunshine day and, you know, mowing and weeding and, and cleaning up the yard and just enjoying the space that God has allowed me to live and mopping my brow and kissing my bride. And, you know, it's just, oh, I feel like, oh, man, I'm worth something right there, you know? Like, ah, oh, I just feel Farmer Mike, you know? And it's gone now. It's like, you know, if now if I'm home and the guy comes and, and he does our yard, I just, I kind of just listlessly hang out inside the house and I'll like peer out the window and <laughs> lucky, you know. I mean, there's no correlation between the service and my satisfaction. And, 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 and here's the thing. I, I just want you to realize that's kind of the deal. Like we, we buy into this idea that oh, if we could just get the service, if we could just get this care, if I could just get a bunch of people taking care of all these needs, and then I'd be happy, then I'd be fulfilled, then I, it'd last, the satisfaction. And, but it doesn't. Because our desires are, they're turned towards things that are not designed to satisfy us. It just doesn't work that way. Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says this. 
True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. What I love about this is it's actually a new definition of what wealth looks like. Wealth looks like godliness with contentment. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can take nothing with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food or clothing, let us be content. Let us be content, right? If we can focus on what God has already provided, let's be content with that. And the next problem we have with our desire is our desires not turned toward the one who does satisfy. So our desires turn toward what doesn't satisfy. Our desires turn toward what we do not have. But what we do have and what does satisfy is the person of Jesus himself. It's our relationship with God. There's this verse from the Psalms, Psalm 132, which says, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. A a very beautiful picture mentally is evoked from this passage. This idea of of a child who now has learned to enjoy food and to take food, you know, of other sources, not his mother's milk or her mother's milk any longer. And what the picture of this wean child at peace and content with mom, what, it, what it's saying is that now the child's, no, when it's with his mom, no longer clamoring for, for more food. No, no longer agitated, hey, feed me, feed me, like it's all about me. The, the wean child is actually content just to be present and just to receive comfort and just to enjoy proximity and care. And that's what the Lord invites for us. He wants to be like that. You know, it's one thing, yes, we can come to him with all of our prayer requests, all of our needs, but wouldn't it be great just to come to the Lord and be present with him, to just enjoy that relationship where he just wraps his arms around you and he just totally communicates his unfailing love for you. He's the one who is enough for us. So we're trading in this theology of scarcity for a theology of enough. And we're, we're making the choice. We're, we're not going to lean into dissatisfaction, but we're going to choose contentment. The next fill-in on your outline is that we need to choose trust over worry. Trust over worry. And, and it is true, and there are many studies that back this. I found a study this week that said 64% of Americans worry consistently about their finances. Worry consistently. So this is a, an ongoing reality in American culture. The irony to me was I read, you know, one of the sublines of this was that people whose uh, estates were worth one to five million dollars worried the most. So, so this myth that if I just had a little bit more, I wouldn't worry, that, it, it doesn't work. That's a myth. We need to make a choice right now where we are that we are actually going to choose trust over worry. And Jesus talks about this. He talks about it in the book of Matthew. He talks about it in the book of of Luke. Uh, This passage I'm going to read actually comes from Luke chapter 12. It says, then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? 
And if worry can't accomplish a, a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? As you look at that passage, you'll see one of the truths immediately that comes out of it is that worry accomplishes nothing good for us. It accomplishes nothing good. And what is worry? It's a posture of mind, an anxious posture of mind. And what does worry do? Worry rehearses negative potential outcomes. So you just rehearse it and your anxious mind will stew in it and go over it again and again and again. And quite often it's really vague and conceptual. It's not actually well-defined, this worry that we rehearse, but we just, we just kind of pull it in and we ruminate on it and we just stew. The posture of our mind is to just you know, go over all sorts of horrible things that you know, could ever possibly go wrong. And it doesn't prepare us for anything, but what it does is it makes us emotionally identify with all this horrible stuff that never happens. It does lead to things. It leads to exhaustion. It leads to burnout. You know, it's funny to me when you look at the passage, Jesus says, can worry even add a single moment to your life? You know, he knew what science tells us today. Worry actually takes your life away. It actually shortens your lifespan if you get caught up in a lifestyle of worry. So this idea of choosing to trust over worry. The next thing that we read is, uh, this is again from Luke. It's chapter 12, verses 27 and following. Jesus says, look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Could you guys underline that phrase? That is so true. He will certainly care for you. He will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith, Jesus says? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. The next thing we see from this passage is that worry dominates minds with the myth of scarcity. It dominates minds with the myth of scarcity. You know, what Jesus does in that last phrase, he talks about how these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over, he says. And, and so one of the things you need to know as a Jesus follower, a mark of a Jesus follower is that your thoughts aren't going to be dominated with thoughts of scarcity. But you are going to learn how to more and more lean into trust that God is a good father, that he does provide for you, that he will continue to provide for you. And it's, it's not going to be a lifestyle of worry, but it's going to be a lifestyle of trust. Um, what's interesting, I think about my own children. I think about the way in which I see this, this scarcity concept come up in their own life. The only place I see it in, in their entire calendar year is when there's Halloween candy in the home right? And that's when the hoarding starts. And that's when the fights and the arguments, but hey, no, that's my Snickers and, you know, all this stuff. It's just because that's just, you know, that scarce commodity. But again, we don't care about scarcity as followers of Jesus because we don't have a God who lives by that rule. God is not a God of scarcity. God is a God of abundance. And so we need to look not, as, not what is valuable because it's scarce. We need to look at what is valuable because it has inherent worth. We, we need to look at what is valuable because it is intrinsically worthy. And Jesus actually tells us that. He says, here's what has worth all on its own. 
This does not ever adhere to the laws of supply and demand. It's called the kingdom of God. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Right? That's the most important thing we can go after. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Look, and he will give you everything you need. Could you circle the word everything? God loves to give his children everything they need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. God wants to give us the kingdom. He wants to give us what we need. So don't fall prey to an anxious mind. You might want to write this down. It's absolutely true. There is no scarcity in the kingdom of God. There's no poverty mentality in the kingdom of God. There is only abundant provision. You know, Jesus talks about the floodgates of heaven open, poured out on us, spilling over on us. That's the picture that we have of the heart of the Father toward us. So this, this idea of choosing trust, right? Trust him. Trust his heart. Trust his provision. Don't worry. The last thing that I would challenge you in this, if we're going to embrace this enough theology, we need to choose mindful stewardship over haphazard chaos. Mindful stewardship over haphazard chaos. Mindful or intentional or strategic. I know some of you are like this. You're like, I don't even like talking about this. I don't even like thinking about finances. Every time I think about finances, I get stressed out. So I just don't think about finances at all. Here's the irony. If you live a life and you don't think about finances at all, chances are you get in a situation that causes a lot of stress in your life right? When Jesus says, don't worry about our finances, he doesn't say, don't be thoughtful about your finances. He doesn't say, don't plan or or be strategic with your finances. He just says, don't worry. Don't let it go negative. But he says, you do need to be intentional. The Bible is actually quite clear. We need to be careful in stewarding what God gives us to steward. So this is what it says in Proverbs 27. It says, know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds by the way, anybody here have flocks or herds? Do you guys, any, any farmers that I can just bless right now? Hey, God bless you. That's cool. Anybody else? Yeah? No? Okay. My, I, my grandpa, my great-granddad, on, on, uh, he had a farm in Fairview, Oklahoma, and he had 180 cattle all the time. Like, he had herds. And um, so that's cool if that's you. But most of us, we've got to translate this in today's, like, where we are today. So this is a challenge for us to take care of your form of income, to take care of how you invest, like what, you know, what is it that you're doing to steward the income and the, and the expenses and, and creating that sense of budgeting. So that's what this is about. It says, put your care, heart into caring for your herds, for riches don't last forever and the crown might not be passed to the next generation. In other words, things like economy and politics, these things are not stable, right? That might change. After the hay is harvested and the new crop appears, the mountain grasses are gathered in, your sheep will provide wool for your clothing, and your goats will provide the price of a field. And you will have enough goat's milk for yourself, your family, and your servant girls. 
So I, I love this passage because basically what it says is, look, be careful as you steward your resources. Be careful as, you know, take care of the state of your flocks and your stocks, right? Like, like be mindful about these things. Know what's coming in, you know, do your harvest in the right season. He says, if you do that, then God will continue to provide for you. You'll have food to eat and you'll have, you know, clothes to wear, the wool to wear. You'll have goat's milk to drink. Not only that, you'll have a little leftover to pay the babysitter, Right? Like, like all of that is contained in that passage right there. And so we got to be proactive about it. There's an overarching question when it comes to stewardship, and it's the question, well, how much should I spend? How much should I spend every month or, you know, in between paychecks? And the answer to that question universally is a little bit less than you earn. Okay? If you can spend a little bit less than you earn, then you've actually created a really beautiful upward cycle. And that's a, that's a wonderful part of the beginning of stewardship. Of course, the, the chief tool for good stewardship is to have a budget and to be intentional about your budget, to know what it is that you make and what it is that you spend, how much that you spend, so that you can be proactive and that you can limit yourself from time to time. So uh, I know that many of us, this is where we have trouble. So I do want you to know that every single trimester, we host a class at Overlay called Financial Peace University. We're about halfway through one class right now. We've got another one starting right after Easter. So just understand that if this is something that you feel like, I'd love to get really proactive about this and you haven't done a budget, this is a great way for you to start Financial Peace University. But I do want you to know this, that there are a couple of life hacks I'm going to buzz through right now. And I think these, I've found these in conversation with many folks. They, they do become helpful. Maybe they'll be helpful for you. Go ahead and write these down and, and see if they, they work in your life. The first life hack I would share is that you would build into your life, into your month, um, what I would call spend nothing days. You have, to, you have to get together with your spouse on this. You can't do it and the other, you know, your spouse not be doing it. Like together uh, and, and your kids, if your kids, you know, have access to your bank card or whatever, uh, which mine do. Uh, the, the, the point is like you get together and you go, hey, look, we're going to have three spend nothing days this week. No popping off to the coffee shop. No, you know, filling up the tank of gas. No, just swinging by the store for a few things. Those are the ways in which, like, money just dribbles out. It's one thing to, like, say, hey, no big purchases, right? Like, let's talk about big purchases. But even then, like, money just seems to kind of slip out through the cracks. And, and so building in this spend nothing days, it's a good way to go. By the way, please write this down. Telling yourself no is a superpower. It is. It's a super bad. If you can say no to yourself, it's like massively empowering. Like make a game of it. Like no, <laughs> no, you know, and, and you're done and, and you move on. But you'll, you'll have so much more uh, empowerment as you uh, approach your finances. So first life hack is spend nothing days. The, the next life hack is a little bit more complex. It's this idea of realize your limitations provide creativity. Your limitations provide creativity. God meets you in your limitation. None of us, very few of us, have unlimited resources to spend. And it's in that limit that we actually can be met by God and he can show us creative problem solutions, creative ways to move forward. 
I want to tell you, and this is a lesson I've learned out of church ministry, but it's amazing because in church ministry, you never have just, you know, you always have a limit financially. And so it's been amazing to see how often God has met us in workarounds and solutions that end up being, you know, pennies on the dollar kind of thing and in really quality ways to go after solutions that don't require big bucks. And I, I just want to encourage you, your limitations are the canvas for your creativity. Right? So it, look at it in a new way. That's the second life hack. The third is if uh, you're a, a parent here and you've got kids in your home, I would encourage you to begin to teach them now what I would call financial fluency. You know this is absolutely true that the best time to learn a new language so that you can be fluent in that language is earlier is better. And so if you can do that financially and train your children like this, and one of the great ways to do this is whenever you give them an allowance, whenever, you know, grandma gives them, you know, birthday money or however that works, you you provide three envelopes for them. One envelope, it, it's to God, right? This is what I'm going to give to God. The next envelope, savings. And the third envelope is where most of the money goes. That's just for your, your kids to use. So then they can use it to, you know, buy a candy bar, go to the movies or whatever sort of life phase that they're in. That's, that's money that they can use, you know, for their own enjoyment. But you begin by modeling this idea of generosity is a part of the thing and savings is a part of the thing. And then the rest, that's what you use. Here's the, here's the great kicker. It's, it's a beautiful thing to teach your children that while you're living that kind of a life, right? While you're modeling it. And you, don't, you might not do the envelopes and that's fine. You, know, uh, you, know, you don't have to do it visually. You can do it digitally or however. But just make sure that you're, you're doing, okay, this is for generosity. This is for savings. This is what I'm gonna live on. The fourth thing that I wanna challenge you with as a life hack is real simple, is that I really wanna encourage you to, to settle your issue of generosity Settle your commitment to the Lord. Do that first. Do that on the front end. And we've seen this often throughout the, the years. And I've actually talked to buddies who, they're like, oh, when I get through the month, whatever I have left over, I give that to Jesus. Here's the problem with that. Number one, there's never any money left over at the end of the month. Right? That's just kind of the reality most of us live in. Number two, what kind of priority does that set that Jesus receives. After I pay for everything and after all of the needs of my family are met and after everything that I do for entertainment and all the other stuff that just I, I, I spend as a whim and, you know, the going out to eat and the coffee at Starbucks, like all that stuff, after everything else that happens in a month, if I have any left over and all of my other priorities are met, then Jesus gets some. Man, that leftover philosophy, that, that really doesn't show that Jesus is any priority to you. I would encourage you, this is what the Bible says, and I, we can point to 10 or 15 verses, the idea of giving out of your first measure of income, giving out of your first fruits, giving the very best of your flock to the Lord. Like, like it's, the Bible's just filled with this idea of, of the Lord gets what's first, and so set your commitment ahead of time. I know a friend, and he and his wife are selling a home and before they even listed it, before they put it on the market, they decided that, that out of the sale of this home, Jesus was going to get this much. 
Interesting, of course, the market's fluctuated a little bit, and, and they don't even know if they're going to be able to sell the home for what it's listed as. But here's the thing. He said to me, Mike, it really doesn't matter what I've said to the Lord. That's what we're giving to the Lord. And it's just this beautiful fruit of, of, of peace that comes when you say, Jesus, this is what I'm going to give you, and then follow through with that. It's just a gorgeous thing. As a follower of Jesus, if that's who you are, just know that's how you build integrity in your faith with the Lord. What you say to the Lord, that's what your commitment is. Follow through with it, okay? So those are just a few things to think about. I want you to, to kind of process with me a little bit. God is a good father, and God loves his children, and so God wants the very best for his children. If you're here and you're a parent, I imagine that's also true for you. For those of you who've been around Overlake, you know I am a dad. I've got three kids, all teenagers. My heart for my kids is so good. There are many things that I want for my kids. I really want to score well in this idea of fathering my children. So yes, there are some things that I want to provide for my kids that are material. I want to provide them food and clothing. I want to provide them shelter, you know, transportation, education, some of the big uh, blocks. And I know there are price tags associated with all those things. And, And so, yes, that's a part of what I want for my children. But I hope you know that what also I want to provide for them, what I would consider more important than any of those things, I want to provide a constant source of unconditional love for them. I want to provide a framework for them where they can be joyful in their lives no matter what they're facing. I want to provide for them a recognition of the open heaven of God's love and grace over their lives so that they might have a relationship of trust with the Lord of the universe. You see, I want to provide so much for them, a heart of compassion that actually cares about the needs of others. And the list could go on. But I want you to see that the things that I'm really interested in providing for them, they don't have a price tag associated with them. And that's true of your heavenly father for you. Yes, the Lord will meet your needs. Jesus says, yes, he will give you everything you need. Not everything you want, and your wants are often, you know, pointed in this other direction. But Jesus says, God loves you, and he will provide for you. Your heavenly Father is good, and he is enough for you. I want to remind you of this great truth that Art Buchwald says. He says, the best things in life aren't things at all. And so why don't you do this? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me and let's just pray right now. We'll ask Jesus for the courage to choose this theology of enough. And Lord, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, we we do want to step into that place where, where we trust you, where we trust that you are good. You're so good. You're better than we can see right now. You're more full and more rich and abundant. You you have more blessings available for us, the blessings that we're right now even blinded to. And so we ask that you would allow us to just be like that weaned child. We just want to be with you. We want to be near you. We want to receive comfort and peace from your presence. We want to be content in you. And so we make these choices. We choose contentment over dissatisfaction, Jesus. We, we do. We choose trust over worry and, 
And we choose stewardship. Show us how to be good stewards of all that you put into our hands. Jesus, we declare right now that we love you because we are surrounded by your love for us. Would you show us how to trust that you are enough for us? We pray this in your precious and holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.